This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for the series finale of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go do that now. As always, I'll be here when you get back. All right, one last time, let's snap, crackle, pop. Part 8, The Road to Wellville. Over the past eight weeks, we've covered stories of mystery, murder, madness, and mayhem, all revolving around Serial City and those wacky Kellogg's. Some of it was funny, some of it was strange, some of it was terribly tragic, but it was all important. That's the first word that comes to mind when I think of the Kellogg legacy. Important. There's no denying that the Kelloggs brought more into this world than they took from it, even if some of it was real ugly. I'm talking to you, eugenics movement. As such, their name lives on. You'd be hard-pressed to drive more than a few miles through Battle Creek without finding a building with the Kellogg name plastered on it, from schools to banks to museums. So I decided, for this last episode, we'd talk about the Kellogg's effect on Battle Creek today. We covered almost 150 years of Kellogg history on this show. Lots of people, lots of places, so many things. But what's still there? What tangible places can we visit today to soak up that very unique Kellogg brand of weird? What ghosts have been left behind? I'll talk about all of that in both the literal and figurative sense, but first, I want to talk about one of my favorite things that wouldn't be part of our world today without the Kelloggs. And I don't mean cereal, but that's at the top of the list, too. I'm talking about the movie The Road to Wellville. The Road to Wellville was first a novel, written by American author T.C. Boyle. The synopsis reads as follows. Will Lightbody is a man with a stomach ailment whose only sin is loving his wife Eleanor too much. Eleanor is a health nut of the first stripe, and when in 1907 she journeys to Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's infamous Battle Creek Spa to live out the vegetarian ethos, poor Will goes too. So begins T.C. Boyle's wickedly comic look at turn-of-the-century fanatics in search of the magic pill to prolong their lives, or the profit to be had from manufacturing it. Brimming with a Dickinson-like cast of characters and laced with wildly wonderful plots, The Road to Wellville is a marvel, enjoyable from beginning to end. 
So this book does one of those things that I love so much. It takes real people, real places, and builds fictional stories around them. In 1994, English filmmaker Alan Parker turned that marvel of a novel into one of the most wonderfully weird movies I've ever seen. Matthew Broderick and Bridget Fonda star as the fictional Will and Eleanor Lightbody, who are essentially the embodiment of wealthy Americans in the early 1900s. So absurd, they have no idea how absurd they are. John Cusack is the fictional Charles Ossining, who is modeled after Charlie Post in ways that we'll get into in a little bit. Dana Carvey is George Kellogg, one of Dr. Kellogg's 42 children, and the magnificent Sir Anthony Hopkins absolutely steals the show as Dr. Kellogg. I imitate his character all the time, and unfortunately for my family, I do it quoting his lines from the movie, which are mostly just real weird and inappropriate. The movie is fiction, of course, a comedy of the strangest order, but like the book that inspired it, it does hold some elements of truth. So I thought it would be fun to pick some of those out. The movie opens up with a group of women forcefully laughing to the tune of a song. It's very weird, but it cracked me up because I had a friend in middle school who used to do that. She read somewhere that laughing burns X amount of calories, so she would just laugh hysterically for long periods of time as an exercise. Sarah, if you're listening to this podcast, and I think you are, thank you for that. The movie then cuts to Dr. Kellogg on one of his wacky inventions. Most of the inventions they show in the film including the yogurt enema machine, were 100% real. I struggled with how many of them to try to describe in the episode on the sand, and then I decided that you really just need to see them for yourselves, in action, and the road to Wellville is the best way to do that. Watching the rigorous treatment patients were put through, it's no wonder that so many presumably healthy people dropped dead of heart attacks at the sand. One very strange scene, which is saying something because the whole movie is strange, takes place in the dining room. A patient is talking to Will Lightbody about fletcherizing, which is the practice of chewing each bite of food at least 40 times before swallowing. This was something they really did at the sand, and this patient, played by Lara Flynn Boyle, starts singing what's called the Chew Song, and the entire dining room joins in. The Chew Song was actually real, and guests were required to sing it before every meal. I'm not going to sing it for you because this is not that kind of podcast, but you can find the clip on YouTube if you just search for Wellville Chew Song or something like that. Um, But to picture Amelia Earhart and Mary Todd Lincoln singing the Chew Song, that is just a level of can't even that I didn't know existed. Another memorable scene is Eleanor Lightbody's trip to a doctor outside the sanitarium walls for a womb massage, which has nothing to do with the womb at all and is exactly what you're probably thinking it is. This was more fake news because in real life, there was no reason to leave the sand for a womb massage. Dr. Kellogg performed them by the thousands. They weren't sexual, of course. They were strictly scientific. John Cusack's character, Charles Ossining, is based on Charlie Post, who stole the Kellogg's recipes and built his own breakfast food empire. He's kind of portrayed as this slimy, bumbling idiot who seeks out former Kellogg employees to help him duplicate Kellogg recipes and make something called Perfo Flakes. 
Purful Flakes actually was one of the many imposter brands of cornflakes that popped up in Battle Creek during the cereal gold rush. Charles Ossining also talks a lot about The Road to Wellville, which was a real ad campaign that Charlie Post used for his own failed health resort. Notably missing from the film is Will Kellogg, which I think is a shame because he really was such an interesting guy. I get it, though. The movie had its focus, and the sibling rivalry between the brothers wasn't a part of it. It was such a big part of their real lives that it would have just swallowed up the whole plot of the movie. Dr. Kellogg does have an assistant in the movie, however, a perfectly round, gross-looking comic book character named Polt, and Dr. Kellogg seems to have much the same dynamic with Polt that the real Dr. Kellogg had with Will Kellogg in real life, right down to making him run alongside him on his bike and take notes. Dana Carvey's George Kellogg is a really weird addition to the movie, but I found that his true story is even weirder. In the movie, George is a filthy, alcoholic bum that visits the Sam periodically to leech cash off his father and also just kind of to torment him. In the end, he's the one that sets the great fire that destroys the Sam. Spoiler alert, but I did tell you to watch the movie, so eh, it is what it is. Um, But in real life, he almost for sure didn't set the fire. The real George Kellogg was the illegitimate son of a sex worker by the name of Holda. He was rescued from the slums of Chicago by Dr. Kellogg around 1897 or 1898. When Dr. Kellogg found him, he was four years old and basically living on his own. He ran the streets alone, he ate from the trash, he couldn't talk, and he was covered from head to toe in parasites. Fleas, lice, gross. Dr. Kellogg, who was in the Windy City on business, petitioned the court to grant an emergency adoption, which they did, and just like that, he took a new child home with him. And my husband gets upset when I spontaneously adopt a puppy or buy more chickens. Immediately upon arriving at the Kellogg estate in Battle Creek, the doctor bathed George, treated his wounds, and burned his tattered clothes. Within six months, he reported that George was becoming a fine boy. He was kind of an experiment to the doctor. He wanted to see if nurture really could overcome nature. Sources, however, reported that George was always difficult, one of the doctor's foster kids that didn't pan out. He grew up to be an unemployed alcoholic and a drifter described as just generally no good. He only came around when he needed money, and then when Dr. Kellogg died, he, of course, contested the will. Both the novel and the movie The Road to Wellville end with George setting the sand on fire out of hatred for his father. But when the real fire occurred, George was only eight. I suppose it's not impossible, but it is very unlikely. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I highly, highly recommend both the movie and the book. In a book-movie combo situation, I always prefer to watch the movie first, because the book is almost always better. So if you watch the movie first and you like it, the book is just going to enhance that. But if you read the book first, you're almost always going to be disappointed by the film adaptation. It doesn't look like what you pictured in your head, there's too much left out, all that. So that's my review, of sorts, of The Road to Wellville. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Now let's talk about Battle Creek a little bit. In their heyday, the Kellogg's owned Cereal City, and much of what they built is still there, although a lot of it burned, as we've already covered. 
At the time of this recording, we are still in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic, so any information I provide about attractions that require you to go inside or places that offer tours may not be accurate depending on the state of the world. If you're trying to get inside some places, definitely do your own research, call ahead, and make sure that you're actually going to get to do all of the things you want to do on your trip. But I'm going to give you guys kind of a jumping off point here. Of course, we want to start with the big one, the sanitarium. The sand went through three versions. The ramshackle version built by the Seventh-day Adventists in 1867, the improved version Dr. Kellogg built a decade later, and then the monstrosity of a building erected after the 1902 fire. That building still stands and is now owned by the U.S. government. It's located at 74 North Washington Avenue in Battle Creek and is now the Hart Doyle Inouye Federal Center. It's named after three former U.S. senators who were patients there during World War II when it was still a hospital. This is a federal building, so you can't just go walking in, but you can schedule a tour. There's more information on how to do that on the Michigan.org website, but basically, according to the security guard that I talked to when I visited, you just contact the Seventh-day Adventists and they will set it up for you. Private tours aside, you can always marvel at Dr. Kellogg's greatest achievement from the outside. At 14 stories tall, it's hard to miss. It just kind of looms over the downtown area. And if you believe in the supernatural, I promise you that place is haunted. Not only did countless guests die at the sand, but after the government purchased the building, it served as a World War II hospital that took in casualties from overseas and service members with grave injuries and missing limbs. So a lot, lot, lot of darkness there. But it's also just a beautiful building. I took so many pictures when I went and I didn't even get to go inside. Just down the road from the sand is a whole bunch of cool stuff. Dr. Kellogg kept his world very small. The Dr. J.H. Kellogg Discovery Center is located at 411 Champion Street and is described as an interactive discovery museum honoring Dr. Kellogg, and it's got some of his weird inventions on display, one of his white suits. If you find Dr. Kellogg as fascinating as I do, it's a must-visit. Uh, According to the website, it's open Monday through Friday from 10 to 4, Saturdays from 2 to 4, and Sundays from 10 to 4. I definitely recommend making sure the museum's open before you get your hopes up. They still weren't open to the public yet when I visited. Thank you, COVID. Their phone number is 269-965-3000, which is the same phone number that you'll want to call if you want to try to schedule a tour of the SAN. The Discovery Center is part of the historic Adventist Village, which is a quiet little area with several historical sites that are important to the SDA community. You know, the ones that didn't accidentally burn down in the early 1900s. Cool to check out from the outside, but definitely call ahead if you want to do some indoor exploring. And again, that phone number is 269-965-3000. Dr. Kellogg's massive 20-room house, also known as The Residence, was located at 202 West Manchester Street, just across the road from Adventist Village. Today, it's just an empty field, a big old roped-off, empty plot of land full of overgrown trees and weeds next door to a church. Huge bummer that there's not at least a historical marker there. I think he earned that at the very least. The other Kellogg brother got the breathtaking memorial. 
Will Kellogg's modest mansion is still standing, and after being moved from its original location, it is now located at 1 Monroe Street in Battle Creek, right near the W.K. Kellogg Foundation headquarters. It is used for nonprofit events, just like the philanthropic serial king would have wanted. So you can't take an indoor tour, but you can check out the outside, which is also pretty cool. It's got a beautiful garden along the river, a statue commemorating the city's important role in the Underground Railroad. It's just a gorgeous place with lots to look at, even if you can't get inside. You can explore the inside of Will's summer home, though, which is called the Kellogg Manor House. This one's about 15 miles outside of Battle Creek, and it's the only place I didn't actually go to while I was there. It's located at 3700 East Gull Lake in Hickory Corners. Tours are available from 9 to 1 and 1.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. Calling ahead for reservations is recommended due to private events, often held on the grounds, and of course, also due to coronavirus. To make a reservation there, call 269 671 But again, this is another location that you can absolutely peep from the outside without planning ahead. The Haskell Home for Orphans burned to the ground in 1909 and was not rebuilt, despite Dr. Kellogg's promise that it would be. The Haskell Home had its own cemetery, however, and you can't burn down a cemetery. You can build over top of it, though, and that's exactly what happened. The Haskell Home Orphanage itself was located at 156 Hubbard Street, north of the Kalamazoo River, in what is now a residential area. Based on the size of the houses there now and the photos that I've seen of the orphanage, I would guess that there are at least half a dozen houses on that plot of land. And my money says that they are all haunted. When my knowledgeable navigator and I drove through the neighborhood... Very slowly, I pointed to the location before I noticed that there were four or five kids sitting outside on the front porch, and they definitely saw me. Uh, There was a part of me that wanted to, like, stop and explain to them why I was pointing at their house and creeping by, but I didn't want to traumatize them or, you know, go to jail for trying to lure children into my van with ghost stories. Didn't seem like a good idea at the time. The Haskell Home Cemetery, where the three children killed in the fire were buried, along with others who died while staying at the Haskell Home, was located at 480 Parkway Drive and is now the site of Battle Creek Academy. When you first pull into the long driveway that leads to the school, the cemetery is immediately on the left. You'll see a large boulder with a plaque on it in front of a little patch of woods. Such a weird spot for a cemetery. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't at the time, but now it's just a weird, weird location. I wonder how many people have driven by it day in, day out, just taking their kids to and from school with no idea that it's there. The historical marker is really all you can see anymore. The area is pretty overgrown, and most of the headstones were covered over long ago. But the bodies are still there including those of the three children killed in the Haskell Home Fire, who were buried in a single casket as their remains couldn't be identified. The cemetery is a little ways away from the actual school building, but it's not too far from the playground, which is a bit creepy. While my tour guide and I were exploring the cemetery, I kept trying to show her a photo of the Haskell Home Fire, and every time I pulled it up, my phone would freeze and I would have to restart it 
We were right out in the open. I had full reception and I could do literally anything else on my phone, but I couldn't pull up a photo of the fire while we were standing on the land where the victims were buried. I found that a little strange. Another must-visit stop on the Kellogg History Tour is Oak Hill Cemetery, which is located at 255 South Avenue in Battle Creek. This is the one spot I was confident I was going to get to explore a bit when I visited, pandemic or not, but a couple days before my visit, there had been some strong storms, possibly even a little bit of tornado action. The cemetery sustained heavy damage, there were trees down everywhere, and it was closed for safety reasons. So I didn't get to go in, which was a huge bummer. I'll have to go back someday when I can get inside the sand and visit Dr. Kellogg's museum and just knock those three things out all in one day. Since I didn't get to see them for myself, I can't tell you where to find the following historical sites, just that they lie beyond the gates at Oak Hill Cemetery. The Kellogg's, of course, are there. Dr. Kellogg is buried beneath a very simple, modest family headstone that just says Kellogg, with individual plaques for each family member. Will's grave is just a few feet away, although his is a bit fancier and more noticeable. He's got a little section of hedges and a fence surrounding his grave, but it's still pretty simple. The Kellogg's nemesis, Charlie Post, was not so humble, though, and he's got a whole mausoleum with his name engraved on the front. Dr. Kellogg's mortal and possibly immortal enemy, Firebug Mother White, is buried at Oak Hill as well. She's got a pretty fancy plot, too. She's got this big tall obelisk and a historical marker, and then the family's headstones kind of surround the obelisk in a big rectangle, creating like a courtyard, I guess you would call it. The white plot is said to bring a pilgrimage of SDA followers to the cemetery every year, so she is the most visited spirit at the cemetery. Sojourner Truth is also buried at Oak Hill. Her headstone is tall and skinny with her name engraved vertically, and she's got a historical marker as well. There's also a beautiful 12-foot-tall statue of Sojourner Truth located on the corner of Division and Michigan Avenue in downtown Battle Creek that's definitely worth checking out. Speaking of statues, back at Oak Hill Cemetery, there is a statue that has earned quite a reputation, known by locals as Crying Mary. The six-foot-tall bronze statue of what resembles a Greek goddess stands over the grave of Battle Creek businessman Johann, Johannes, Johannes, I don't know, Decker, who did not live a particularly exciting life or die a particularly exciting death. He lived to be 70 years old, and he died of natural causes in 1910. The following year, his wife Ruth had the statue made by a Chicago artist as a tribute to her husband. Over the years, a green patina developed on the statue, as often happens with bronze when it's exposed to the elements, and it just so happened to form in a way that made it look like she had tears streaking down her face. At least, that's the practical explanation. The otherworldly explanation goes like this. At the stroke of midnight, every Sunday night, the statue weeps tears for her lost children. People claim to have seen and felt her tears as she cried. Now, the Deckers did have two children that died young. Lila, who died in 1872 at the age of three from scarlet fever, and Baby Decker, who was stillborn in 1875. Could the statue be crying for them? 
I mean, maybe the loss of a child is sad, but it's certainly not the spirit of a mother who murdered her children and then took her own life, which is one of the legends that has circulated about the statue. The children died three years apart, both of natural causes. Their mother died many years later, in 1925, when she was 85. I would love to be able to talk about the vibe I got from the statue, but as previously stated, I wasn't able to get into the cemetery due to storm damage. I'll go back, though. One thing I can tell you, nobody should be witnessing the statue crying at midnight because the cemetery is gated and it is not open at night. And trespassing is illegal, friends. So go take a stroll through Oak Hill Cemetery during the day. Seek out the Kellogg's, the Whites, the Post Mausoleum, Sojourner Truth, Crying Mary, lots of history at Oak Hill. I do have one strange experience to relate from my visit to Battle Creek. I've been there before, but not for many years and never really to sightsee, so I don't remember it well. Uh, I was always kind of just going to one spot and then going back home. It's about an hour's drive from where I live, and lucky for me, my dear friend Anya lives and works in Battle Creek. And Anya goes on a lot of my weird adventures with me. She knows this area really well, so she was down to be my official guide for the day. So thank you, Anya, for that. We checked out the sand, the Kellogg Mansion, an empty field, frightened some children that were just hanging out in their front yard, contemplated crawling through a broken section of fencing at Oak Hill and then thought better of it. We drove past the home of Daisy Zick, which still looks exactly like it did when the Zicks lived there. Probably not on the inside, but from the outside. And after a few hours, we said our goodbyes, and she took me back to my car. As I was getting ready to leave, I remembered that she had mentioned there was a Kellogg gift shop of sorts nearby. We meant to stop and see if it was open, but we forgot. I felt a little confident as I'd been traversing the city all day, so I decided to check it out myself. I googled Kellogg store, plugged it into my GPS, and set off. According to my GPS, it was only a few minutes away from where I was parked, and by the time that I realized something was wrong, I was way out of my element, had no idea where I was, and had no choice but to follow the instructions of my GPS. Suffice it to say, I did not wind up at a cute little cereal gift shop, but some weird industrial complex on the other side of town, and it took way longer than a few minutes to get there. I decided to give up and go home, so I typed in my own address and was again just at the mercy of my GPS because I didn't know where I was. And this is when things got really weird. That thing took me all over the city of Battle Creek. I could feel myself going back and forth across the same areas, basically driving in circles. It took me past Fort Custer and the VA hospital, down the road where Carrie Lynn Evans' body was found, past like three different cemeteries, through all these strange little neighborhoods, including the neighborhood where Maggie Hume lived and Patty Rosansky disappeared from, just back and forth, back and forth, and there was nothing I could do about it because I didn't know where I was, so I just had to follow my GPS. Now, I have anxiety and control issues, so I was freaking out, started crying. It was a whole mess. Eventually, I wound up on this country road littered with uprooted trees from the storm, and then I was in Bellevue, where Carrie Lynn Evans disappeared from, then Charlotte, then Potterville, then Grand Ledge, then home. 
My weird GPS made me take back roads the entire way home, which is not normal because there is a perfectly good highway that leads straight from my neighborhood to Kellogg country. When I finally made it home, I looked at the receipts. From the time I sent my husband a text telling him I was headed home and the time I actually arrived, it was two and a half hours. It should have taken an hour. I lost an hour and a half of time, you guys. And I'm sure it was probably a combination of technical difficulties and user error, but I like to think that Dr. Kellogg wanted to take me on a full tour of the city he helped build. My sources for this episode were Howard Markle's book, The Kellogg's, Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, Michigan.org, Find a Grave, Michigan'sOtherSide.com, Wikipedia, BattleCreek.org, and my beautiful friend Anya. Not my GPS, Google Maps gets zero credit for this one. And that, my friends, is the Serial Killer Chronicles. It's been a wild ride, literally, at the end there. And I want to thank you all for joining me. I enjoyed working on this project more than I can tell you. If there's one thing I love, it's weird, and nobody did weird quite like the Kellogg's. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find The Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me. This story may be over, but I'll never let go, my egos. (laughs) 